Welcome to the Inspire Church podcast. We are a church being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and living in the rhythms of life, seeking the good of the city for the glory of God. Today, we're currently meeting a one-to-one grant match. Please consider giving so we can meet our match. If you'd like to give, you can give at inspirechurches.com. Be blessed. Can you guys guess what movie here in America holds the record for being the number one movie in box offices for the most consecutive weeks in a row? Don't Google it. It still holds the record to this day. Still holds the record. Avatar, no, what? Sound of Music, Uh uh-uh. Titan, ooh, close, that was number two. No. Let me. I'll. I'll just say this. Ready? E T. E T. Isn't that fascinating? E T. If you have not seen this movie, please see it. Um, it is an amazing movie directed by Steven Spielberg. But what's fascinating about this movie and what's captivating is something that captivates all of us. This idea of these sort of encounters that we are inundated, that we are fascinated, that we are intrigued with, these sort of supernatural, whether it be uh, some sort of alien species, whether it be some spirit, whether it be wh- whatever it is, but this, this sort of uh, interrupted encounter, we are absolutely fascinated by. And this series is called Extraordinary Encounters. And the reason why is because not only is the Bible full of these extraordinary supernatural encounters, but of course it's pointing to the greatest encounter of all, right? These divine interruptions that not only permanently transform our lives, right, but also uh, what Christmas does is it reminds us, it points us to the most extraordinary encounter in human history, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So really, throughout this Advent series, what we have been wanting to do is three things. We're wanting to show you how God has encountered humanity in the past, Number two, we want to recall you on how he is still encountering us in the present. And then number three, we want you to look forward to how he will ultimately encounter us all in the future. How he will one day make all things right. And so we have been looking at these extraordinary encounters. And this morning, we are looking at Moses. Moses. And so the title for the sermon is Moses's call. Moses's call. You're going to find our our scripture in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. And it reads like this. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, who was his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he had led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared in him in flames of fire from within a bush. 
Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him from within the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer. God said, take off your sandals for the place that you are standing is holy ground. Then he said to him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, sorry about that, Perizzites, uh, and Jeb, and, oh, sorry, Je, wait, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. There we go. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way of the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. A lot of ites. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, really, what's his name? Then what should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Wow, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I pray, Lord God, that as we explore these encounters that other people have had, that it will speak to us and encourage us to have an encounter of our own with you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I really just have four points today, and, and they're not super creative, and, but, but, but I think that they are clear, and that really is this, where, what, why, and how. Where, what, why, and how. Fascinating, right? When we look at these encounters, and when I tell you something like, hey, not only did these people have encounters, but you can have an encounter as well, what should be running through your mind are some questions. One of them is maybe, well, where? Where do these encounters take place? Notice here in verse 4, it says, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look. The, the, those words, gone over to look, literally in the Hebrew there means to turn aside. Or, or in other words, to take a detour. See, Moses' life apparently was at a dead end. He originally was adopted by one of the Pharaoh's daughters and was raised in the royal house. He got a top flight education. 
He was young. He was a rising leader. He had friends in high places. But when he discovered that he was an Israelite, not an Egyptian, and that the Israelites were being oppressed and that they were being enslaved, he wanted to help. He, He wanted to become an activist, so to speak. But one day he saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite, and in, a, and in a fit of rage, he killed the Egyptian. And as a result, he had to flee for his life in the desert. That was 40 years earlier. Now his entire life to him probably felt like a detour. To him, he probably felt like he is at a dead end. At this point, everything about him is gone. All of his financial capital is gone. All of his social capital is gone, right? All of his physical capital, because he's now 80 years old, is gone. Everything has been spent. If God ever wanted to use him to help his people, it seems as though the time has passed. Moses has failed He's a forgotten old man, eking out the living in a forgotten part of a world. And now that he is completely bereft of everything you and I would think is necessary for effective leadership, even his confidence, as we can see, God says, now you're ready. Now you're ready. Now, listen, 80-year-old man, you're ready. Now that you don't have anybody anymore, you're ready. Now that you've come to the end of yourself, you're ready. You're ready. He says, now I want to send you to Pharaoh to bring my people home. And I am sending you now. And Moses says, are you crazy? (laughs) See, that's the great irony about being in the middle of nowhere. Only by being at the end of oneself Can they come near to God? I wonder what God has in store for you just to bring you to the end of yourself so you can come near to him. In verse 3, it says this. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. That phrase, go over, means to the other side. The, the, the other side of this ravine. He was watching sheep on this side, but he knew that he had to go over to see this strange sight. And so it means he had to turn aside. He, he could have said, well, listen, I have sheep to deal with, so I'm not going to go check it out. But instead, he goes over. Goes over. Because he sees something that is inexplainable. He, he sees something that does not fit his current model of reality. See, in his current model of reality, it's not that bushes don't catch on fire in the desert. They do all the time. It's that they catch fire quickly and then burn out quickly. But there was something about this that challenged his model of reality. I'm sure as he's sitting there, he saw some smoke and and he figured in just a few moments that will be gone. But as he continued to see the smoke and as he continued to see the bush continuing to burn, there was something there that challenged his mode of reality. 
There was something there that was a paradigm shift that he could not quite grasp. In other words, he's saying, in other words, it's this. All of us, all of us have this. We all say, listen, I have a certain view of reality. All of us have a certain mode of what we say is real, right? We we all have that. We have this working view of reality. And and then he sees something that, that he sees as existing, but somewhere he knows that can't exist, right? And so, and so now it's challenging him because he's wondering, do I need to revise my understanding of reality? And so he has to think about it. He has to ponder. He has to investigate. He has to, he has to go and see this thing that is curious. He must turn aside. In other words, he had to go and leave his sheep. He was tending his sheep and, and it wasn't even his sheep. It was his father-in-law's sheep and he was tending these sheep just every day in his everyday life. And, 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 but he said, I have to stop tending these sheep and I have to go over and check it out. He had to leave the ordinary busyness of life to take time to look and reflect. Now this is important because there's a lot of us who actually are brought near to God, but we are unwilling to pause the busyness to explore and look. We just put our heads down and we say we're busy and we stay busy. You see, we, we don't want to come aside and think about it and meditate. And, and we don't want to come aside and read and study. We don't want to explore. We don't want to turn aside, right? We, we get near, but we don't want to come over. And especially Bay Area folks, we just are busy, right? In fact, in fact Bay Area, how, how you might handle seeing the burning bush is something like that. Oh, there's a burning bush, uh, but, but, but I'm busy. I can't really look at it. You look up, huh, that's still there. Well, don't know. I, I, I'm busy. There's probably some rational explanation anyway, but, but, but I can't do it. I've been paid to watch these sheep, not turn aside and look at bushes, right? Uh, and, and, so, and so you're doing it, and eventually you might be like, can somebody just put that thing out? I, I'm busy. I can't have time to look at it. To leave the busyness of life. The busyness of catching up on Netflix. The busyness of scrolling. The busyness of escaping. The busyness of life. John Mark Homer writes in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, He says this, busyness is an incredible coping mechanism for people because it enables them not to face their fears. Corrington Boom once said that the devil can't make you sin, but he'll make you busy. And there's truth in that. Both sin and busyness have the exact same effect. They cut off your connection to God, to other people, and even to your own soul. The solution to an overbusy life is not more time, but it's to slow down and and simplify our lives around what really matters. Wow. See, here is something important to consider. A lot of us don't even know a burning bush when we see it. See, it's something that challenges your reality. It's something that if you were to take time to really think about and and, and explore, it's something that challenges you, that makes you think outside of the box. Let me just give you some examples. 
For, for example, you have been taught, right, that, that, that there is a natural explanation for everything. There's a natural explanation for everything. If that's true, then why are you unhappy? You might say, well, maybe there's a psychological reason. And so you go to therapy, which is very important, and I suggest you do. You say, well, maybe there's a, social, a, a sociological reason, right? Or maybe there's a physical reason, and so you go to doctors. Uh, and so whatever it is, you make friends, or you go to therapy, or you go to the doctor, whatever it is. But, but, but as you begin to search these things out, what you soon discover is that you are still unhappy, right? Oh, you know that's true. Have you ever prayed for God to heal you? And you just think, if God, if I could just be healed, then I'll be happy. And then what, what, what happens when God answers that prayer? He heals you. Well, a month later, two months later, three years later, you find something else to be unhappy about again. Because there's still a problem. There's this spiritual problem, this hunger, this emptiness. What, what is it? See, it's the burning bush that challenges all of the secular conceptions that we have. Let, let me give you another one. Another one is this, success. Success. There's a lot of people in the Bay Area who, who, who get successful. And to their shock, they find that it's not as nearly as satisfying as they thought. Right? And yet, if they were made for this world, then it would be. Right. Then it would be. Having a lot of money and being very successful would, would, would actually create happiness if you were created for this world. But you know, you reach the top and you're still not satisfied. There is something that is challenging your world view. Well, what about this one, another example? This is more of an intellectual one, right? Society teaches you that, oh, you're nothing really but, but a sack of molecules. That's all you really are, just a sack of evolved molecules. Well, if that's the case, then why can't we treat each other that way? Right? If how we got here was simply by an unguided process of natural selection, and natural selection is the strong trampling the weak, then how is it that you believe in human rights? Where the weak aren't supposed to be trampled on by the strong. Or are you too busy to explore that burning bush? G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy, says this. The modern man first goes to the political meeting where he complains that people are treated as if they're beasts. Then he takes his hat and umbrella and goes into a scientific meeting where he proves that they practically are beasts. In short, the modern revolutionist, being an infinite skeptic, is always engaged in undermining his own minds. In his book on politics, he attacks men for trampling on morality. In his book on ethics, he attacks morality for trampling on men. Therefore, the modern man is, re is in revolt, has become practically useless for all the purposes of revolt. By rebelling against everything, he's lost his right to rebel against anything. Do you see? Where do these encounters happen? They happen usually when you come to the end of yourself and when you are willing to stop the busyness of life and explore the burning bush and respond. 
But, you know, we are inquisitive minds and we cannot stop just at where. We have to ask what? You say, okay, Pastor Roger, I, I hear that. But, but also when you, when you talk about encounters, this encounter of God, what exactly are you talking about? Right? But are you talking about that we're supposed to have this encounter where, you know, the, the roof gets ripped off and some big spiritual being comes in and levitates? Saying, have you ever done that? Have you ever done something crazy? Like, I don't know. You know, you're like, God, if you're real, you're going to make this pencil float, you know, and it'll just begin to levitate. You know, and so you wait and wait and wait. And of course, it doesn't levitate. Right? And, and you almost want to just, you know, blow on it a little bit to make it do something just so that way. You know, I mean, what do you mean encounter? Like, what, what does that mean? What are you talking about? Well, the answer in the text really is helpful because what it says is, to, is it talks about meeting a God who is a God of fire. Now, what's interesting is God actually appears, manifests his presence uh, in this manifestation of fire several times throughout the Bible. When he comes down on Mount Sinai, he comes down as fire. When he's leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, he's a pillar of fire. In the book of Hebrews, the last verse of chapter 12 says, Worship the Lord in reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Why? Why? Well, he tells us. See, up until now, Moses believed in God, but he hadn't really encountered him. He believed in God. But he hadn't really encountered. I wonder if we're in that place too. I wonder if there's many of us in this room where we believe in God, but we haven't actually encountered him. Okay, I will. And the God of the Bible is a God who is not someone you should only believe in abstractly, but that you need to encounter. You need to encounter and fire has this great existence that sort of smites the senses, right? And with fire, you see its brightness, you feel its heat, you smell the smoke, you hear the roar. You don't just believe in fire, you encounter fire, right? You've encountered it. It's something that cannot just be believed in, but can be encountered. And Moses believed in God, but this was the first time he encountered him. Alec Moiter, who has written a wonderful commentary on the book of Exodus, uh, he essentially basically says this, that this is where he went, Moses went from mental belief into a life-changing encounter. Life-changing is the way that you can know if you've went from just abstractly believing in God to actually encountering him. Pascal, a famous mathematician and philosopher, when he died, they discovered in his coat lining that there was a document that had been sewn into the lining. And it was a document that described an event that happened one night really late for about two hours in 1654. And it's really interesting how he describes it. And this is basically what the paper says. He says, in the year of 1654, Monday 23rd November of November, half past 10 in the evening till about half past 12, he says this, four-letter word, fire. Fire. Just one line, capital letters. Fire. 
And he says this, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, not the philosophers, not of the philosophers, not, uh, 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 not of, I'm sorry, not of the philosophers, but, but feelings of joy, peace, God, Jesus Christ. Now this metaphor of fire is fascinating because unlike water or unlike clay, right? Clay and water are shaped by the toucher. Clay and water are shaped by the toucher. But put your hand on the fire and you will find that the toucher is shaped by it. The fire will consume you. The fire will melt you. It will burn you. There's something unyielding about fire. There's something mysterious about it. There's something attractive about it, right? And so here's Moses, and, he, and he's standing in front of this burning bush, and, and there's this conversation that's happening. And at some point, he says, wait a minute, what's your name? Who should I say that you are? And God says something in this chapter that for centuries have been puzzling people over and over again. But essentially, what God gives Moses is the Hebrew word to be. That's all he gives them, to be. I am sent you. That, 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 that word, I am, really is to be. In other words, tell them that being itself has sent you. Being itself has sent you. This is what God is saying. He says, listen, I have no beginning. I have no end. I always am. There is never a time in which I, could, I will not be. There is never a time where I came into existence. I always was. I always will be. There's no beginning. There's no end. In other words, he has absolute power, and there is nothing that he depends on. He is fully self-sustaining. See, this is why the question, well, who created God, doesn't actually make sense. It's actually like asking, what does the color blue taste like? Or, where is the bachelor's wife? Now, see, when you ask that question, either you don't mean bachelor or you don't mean wife. You, you've put in a different definition for those terms. Otherwise, if they keep their definition, then it doesn't make sense. Where's the bachelor's wife? See, when you ask who created God, you either don't mean created or you don't mean God unless you change the definition because God was never created. He never came into being, you see. And so he says, who should I say set me? And notice when God gives him his name. Notice when Moses asks. See, here he is, he's having this encounter, and then God begins to challenge him. God begins to tell him something that he isn't comfortable with. He's saying, I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to face Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him to let my people go. And Moses is like, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What are you talking about? And then he asks, well, wait, who are you? Who are you? In other words, what God is saying is this, I am God, I'm just not the God that you wanted me to be. I'm not the God that meets your demands or expectations. Do, do you see that? He says, tell them I am who I am. And in context, God is saying, listen, Moses, you, you, you have to understand that I might not be the God exactly that you wanted. 
But you need to know I am the God that is real. Now, of course, all of us want a God that we create, don't we? Of course we do. We, we want a God that will always meet our standards and our sensitivities, our expectations, and our demands. But we all know that that type of God isn't real. Isn't real. And you say, well, wait, how, how do we know a real God versus a fake God? Well, well, the Bible sort of gives us a test in this metaphor of fire. Because fire at the same moment is beautiful and attractive, yet dangerous, lethal, and scary. Fire is beautiful and attractive, yet lethal, dangerous, and scary. See, the biblical view of God is a God that, that, that is not something that humans can construct. It's utterly counterintuitive because God is absolutely holy and yet absolutely loving. Now, now, there's two basic type of gods that, that our culture wants to create. There's two basic type of gods that our culture wants to create. There are plenty of people that says, I believe in a demanding God, a holy God, a righteous God, right? A God that is frightening, a God that is intimidating, a God that, 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 that earns respect, is respect enduring. Not, 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 not attractive, not, not ravishly beautiful, but a demanding God. There are plenty of people in the world that believe in that kind of God. Then you have this other kind of God who's completely different. This kind of God is beautiful and attractive, except he accepts all kinds of people, right? Takes everyone, loves everybody. Never, never, never comes and never contradicts you. Never challenges you. Always meets your demands. Always says, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. You see. But the Bible says neither of those gods are real gods. Neither of them are. Marx, Freud, Nietzsche, they've all said that the, that, that the demanding God of moralism, that, the, that, 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 this, that this demanding God is very convenient for people who are in power. It's a way of keeping folks under their thumb. So there's a lot of people that love this demanding, righteous, holy God because it gives them power. It gives them authority. It gives them the, the, the ability to look down on others. So it's convenient for people who are in power. But it's also convenient for those that have a God that only for, loves you and, and never corrects you and doesn't say stop that or don't do that or drop that. That's also very convenient because that means that we never have to really change. You're, you're always justified in your feelings. You're always justified in your actions. If you're mad at somebody, you're justified. If you have unforgiveness, you're justified. If you want to be rude to somebody, you're justified. Because you could do no wrong. God is on your side. You see. Okay, call him. <laughs> he needs to hear this word. <laughs> Put it on speaker, folks. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> See, but the biblical God is a God of fire, burning with holiness, zero tolerance for evil and wrongdoing, and yet burning with passionate love that refuses to stop, to stop until he's made us his own. Do you see that? Do you see that? This is how you know if you serve 
the real God. Not a God that's been made up. You see. Not a demanding God, but not one that never corrects, but one that does both. One that does both. That will then ultimately bring transformation. That will ultimately bring transformation. And if you serve a God like that, if you, if you encounter that God, then the ringing question that flows through our minds has to be, why? Why are these encounters even possible if that kind of God exists? See, in some ways, what we see here is a riddle. Anybody like riddles? Is a riddle. And, and my girls give me riddles, and so, you know, the, they're fun. Uh, but sometimes they hurt my head a little bit, if I'm honest. And so here's one. You, you probably already know this one, but, he said, but, but they, they asked me this. They said, listen, there, there were 30 cows and 28 chicken. How many didn't? There were 30 cows and 28 chicken. How many didn't? And I'm like, what? <laughs> they said, listen, Dad, just listen, just listen. There were 30 cows and 28 chicken. How many didn't? Didn't What? No, dad, dad, just answer. There were, 30, there were 30 cows and 28 chicken. How many didn't? And I'm like, you are hurting my head. I don't know what you are talking about. Now, of course, for those of you who know the riddle, you know the answer is 10. There were 10, there were 30 cows, 20 of them ate chicken. How many didn't? Right? I said, that's a pretty good reel. That's a pretty good reel. But let me explain this one. I said, listen, children, you think you're so smart. Well, riddle me this. I said, how is it that after I eat and I am so full that I still have room for dessert? How's that? You know, to me, that's probably the biggest riddle of life. I don't know how to, I mean, I'll eat and I'll get full. I can't eat another crumb. I can't have another pizza, not another bite of pasta. I cannot do it. Not, I mean, I am full, not another bite of egg roll. I cannot, I am so full, full, not one more spoonful of anything. I am full to the max. It's hurting how full I am. And then they bring out the cake <laughs> or the ice cream. And all of a sudden I'm like, Maybe I have a little bit of room. Riddle me that, won't you? <laughs> See, now in this chapter, there's a riddle in it. But it's probably not the riddle that you think it is. See, when you look at this bush, this bush is on fire, and it caught Moses' attention. Not because, again, that bushes don't catch on fire in deserts. Of course they do, right? Because bushes in deserts are, are, are dry and, and they're brittle. But see, they quickly catch on fire, and they quickly uh, burn out. They quickly catch on fire, and they quickly burn out, because obviously fire needs fuel to burn. But what he saw was a burning bush that was on fire, but yet it wasn't consumed by the fire. 
The fire wasn't breaking it down to ash or to smoke. It wasn't being consumed by the fire. It was on fire, but not consumed by the fire. Now, that is a riddle, but that's not actually the biggest riddle in the passage. See? The biggest riddle is not how is the bush not consumed by the fire, but how, Mos- how is it Moses? See, the biggest riddle is not how is the bush not consumed by the fire, but how isn't Moses? How is it that he can stand in the presence of a holy God and not die? See, Moses, over and over again, the first thing God says is, is this, when Moses comes up to the bush, the, God doesn't say, oh, come in, pal, give me a hug. He doesn't say that. He says, wait, stop, stop. He says, take off your sandals, for where you are standing is holy ground. That's what he says. He says, the place that you're standing is sacred. And, and Moses was scared, and he ought to be. He ought to be scared, Right? Because when God came down on Mount Sinai, for example, even if a cow touched it, it died because of the otherness of God, right? Because of the transcendence of God, because of the magnitude of God. And so when God says, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground, Moses is scared. Now for us, we, we kind of see this maybe Hollywood picture of it where it's so nice and you see this fire and, and, and these cool effects and here's Moses and, and, and this little sort of har, hallmark version of it. But, 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 but really... It was a scary situation because when God said, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. What he's saying is you're already standing in the fatal zone. You're already in fatal territory. See, how is it that that's possible? Well, you probably forgot, but at the very beginning in verse 2, we're told That when Moses draws near, the reason there was a fire in the bush is because the angel of the Lord was in the bush. See, verse 2, there was an angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. You see that? And it's the angel of the Lord who is, who is, who, who is, uh, uh, who is speaking and he is there sort of mediating the presence of God. God is speaking to Moses, and Moses is speaking to God through the angel. The angel is mediating, you see. And you say that's interesting, but, but there's a lot of angels, right? Christmas is upon us, and, and we know that, you know, the angel Gabriel showed up to, 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 to give the message. We know that, that a band of angels showed up to the, the shepherd. There's lots of angels, right? So, so how do we know that this isn't just a regular angel? Well, because, you know, usually in Scripture when an angel shows up, they, they, you know, the person that sees the angel trembles in fear and begins to worship them. And what does the angel do? He says, no, 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 stop. Don't worship me. Don't worship me. But not this angel. This angel accepts worship. Hmm. What is this angel? Who is this angel? Alec Moiter, who I mentioned earlier in his commentary, he says something like this. There is only one other person in the Bible who is both identical with and yet distinct from the Lord. One who, without abandoning the full essence and prerogatives of deity, or diminishing the divine holiness is able to accommodate himself to the company of sinners and who, while affirming the wrath of God, is yet supreme display of his outreaching mercy. In other words, the angel of the Lord 
can only be understood as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the angel. Jesus and the angel. That is how Moses can stand in the presence of a holy God. Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, you see. Jesus is the angel. Now, if you think, hey, listen, you're kind of pushing it too far. How do you know that? Well, in John chapter 8, Jesus astonished his listeners when he said, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Do you know what he was saying? He was saying, that was me in the bush talking to Moses. That was me. I am. There's a great Christmas hymn by William Billings that says this. Seek not in courts or places, nor royal curtains draw, but search the stable, see your God extended in the straw. The royal guests you entertain is not of common birth, but second in the great I am, the God of heaven and earth. See, it's Jesus. Jesus is the second in the great I am, the God of heaven and earth. See, it is only through Jesus that you can have a non-human constructed God who neither demands everything nor a God who accepts everything. It's only in Jesus and on the cross of Jesus that you truly have, absolutely have a holy God and yet at the very same moment, a loving God. Think about this. Think about it. Explore the burning bush that's in front of you. Do you know that God, you see? Wow. See, a God who demands... A God who only demands or a God who never demands and only accepts all of that will be problematic. None of it will lead to true transformation. Have you encountered this God? You say, well, I don't know. I don't know if I, how do I know? Last point, how? How do you know if you've had an encounter with this God? Well, there's never ever a time in which God calls you in to give you an experience without sending you out. And here's the thing. When you read all of the people in the Bible that have this encounter where God calls them in, they always end up going out. They go. They all go. You see? How do you know if you've had an actual encounter of God, not just an emotional experience, not just some sort of created God that makes you feel a little more inspired or a little more spiritual? How do you know? You know because you go. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but there it is. You know because you go, right? And, and this is true. There's something about when you encounter this type of God, it's something that changes you. That transforms you. And you take with you in every other space of your life. You don't compartmentalize it to Sunday mornings. But it comes to you in your living room. And you take it with you at work. And through the drive through And in Chick-fil-A. And everywhere else, you see. Right? And in fact, it, how you know is because you become a burning bush yourself. 
See, you turn aside to see a burning bush, and through that, you become a burning bush yourself. See, the very glory of God, the stuff that used to be in the temple and in the tabernacle that was fatal to people, the very glory of God, the holiness of God that was fatal because we're all flawed and we can't live it in ourselves, now comes through the Holy Spirit to live in us. We become ones that are on fire. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, they're all in the upper room waiting. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit fell upon them and that what looked like flames of fire on top of each head. See, from that point forward, all believers became burning bushes. What do you mean by that, Roger? What do you mean it becomes a burning bush? In other words, you are something that when culture looks at you, you're a paradox. They can't quite figure you out. You're strange to their sight. They want to explore you more. You're, you're, you're strange to them. Why? Because somehow you've been transformed. You see? You, in other words, you're, you're not, you're, you're not, you don't let your insecurities control you. So, so you're not always looking for validation. You're, you're, you're okay if something happens at work. You're okay to take the fall. You don't have to throw someone else under the bus. You can say, you know what? I dropped the ball. You're not fearful of having a healthy dialogue of conflict. You see? You're not fearful to approach somebody and say, hey, I love you, and I want to just talk to you. You're not fearful to have hard conversations because you're fearful of rejection or what people might say or you're not sure what they're going to do. But in love, in love, you can talk to somebody. You're not prideful. You're not unwilling to seek input. You're not resistant to collaboration. You see what I'm saying? Have you ever been? Have you ever been in a meeting, or or, or, or with a friend, or or, or at work, or, or or wherever you're at, and, and and somebody says an idea, and the boss is like, "Oh, that's a great idea," and they and they start getting worried. Can you believe what Jenny thought of? Isn't that amazing? And you knew that you brought up that idea last week, and everything within you wants to go and prove yourself, doesn't it? Everything. Well, actually, I'm the one that said. Well, actually, that was my. Well, you know, I'm the one that put that. No, no, it's okay. Let them have that. Celebrate them. You don't need that recognition. Do you see that? You, 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 you don't hold on to things. When, when people around you are, are talking about what other people did and can you believe it and, and a year's gone by and two years and you're still bitter over it. No, 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 no. You're a burning bush. How strange. They look at you and say, well, why, why hasn't that upset you more? Well, why aren't you ready to gossip about it? Do, do, do you see? Or the need to be in control. And, and, and so you have problems with delegation. Maybe you're overly critical. 
But see, if, if you've been transformed, there's something different about you. You, you have a confidence in who you are, but, but that confidence didn't come from the culture giving you identity. It's strange because you can be around people that maybe you don't agree with, maybe you don't side with, whether it be politically, religiously, whatever it is, and yet you can love them truly and deeply. Wow. You become curious to the outside world watching. Do you see? This is how you know if you've encountered this God. Would you stand to your feet? Lastly, how do you encounter God? <laughs> One of the most transformative ways is to worship him. When you begin to sing praises to God, but not just sing them with your lips, but in your heart, when you begin to not let outside experiences, circumstances, fears, intimidations, insecurities control you, but you come to God, not trying to perform, not trying to say, here, God, let me give you my best, but rather when you come to him and you lift up your voice and you lift up your heart and you lift up your mind, broken and and, and not complete, but yet worshiping him with all of your heart. This is how you can be on fire for God, but not burn out. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we serve a God that does not demand performance. And yet, Lord God, one that will challenge how we live and how we think. One that loves us enough to be completely holy and completely loving at the same time. And Heavenly Father, for anybody here this morning that maybe feels unqualified to be a burning bush for you, maybe because of guilt or shame, maybe because of some farness that they feel from you, maybe because of some sort of insecurity or maybe because they feel like they haven't quite reached the bar. I pray that that all of us, God, will remember who you are, that you are the great I am, and that, that we will remember this angel of the Lord that is in the bush. That we'll remember Jesus Christ who died on a cross and rose again. That this holiday season we will look at the manger and the babe that lays in the hay. And that it will be reminders to us of the gospel truth. That through you and in you, God, we can find grace, forgiveness, peace, restoration, strength, wholeness, joy and heavenly father our identity as burning bushes is not found in our works but because 
we've put our trust and rest in yours. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you guys. I hope you have an amazing week. We will see you next Sunday. May God's word continue to challenge and bless you throughout your day. Thank you for tuning in. And if you'd like to give to help us meet our match, please give at inspirechurches.com. Have a beautiful day.